Church history isn't always merely informative. One of the things that I think is interesting is that it is often entertaining. And one of the examples of this uh, comes from this series of allegations that was relatively common against Christians in the early centuries, uh, that Christians were cannibals. It's actually something they were accused of. A late second century work titled Octavius, it contains a fictional dialogue between a, a Christian and a pagan, and it gives a great example of these kinds of accusations. In this work, the pagan figure, it's a, it's a fictional account, but the pagan figure talks about all the heinous things that Christians do behind closed doors in secrecy, things that are so disgusting like loving one another before they even know each other. That's one of the things he accuses us of. But then he accuses us of being incestuous because we call each other brothers and sisters. And then the most fascinating part to me is that he graphically says that Christians would slaughter children so that they could eat the body and drink the blood. Now, if this is your first time in a Christian church, I, th I think I know most of the faces here, but if, if this is your first time in a Christian church uh, or if someone online has stumbled on this, I have good news for you. We don't do that. Um, so you can go ahead and take a nice sigh of relief. Uh, we don't do that here. We don't do it. I've never seen it at any church, actually. Uh, we do all the other stuff. We gather together uh, on the Lord's Day in secrecy. Uh, we call one another brothers and sisters and love each other before we know one another. But there is no cannibalism here, so rest easy. And if there is, please let me or an elder know because we have a huge church discipline issue to take care of as soon as possible. But as shocking as this accusation may sound to those of us who have even a cursory knowledge of Christian teaching, it's not completely shocking that this rumor might have spread in the early world, right? As we see in the sermon text this morning, there are instances where Jesus says things like, eat my flesh and drink my blood if you want to have eternal life. And even then when he said it, it caused some arguments among the Jews. From these kinds of texts and when we think about, you know, the imagery of the Lord's Supper and how early Christians would have written about it, then we can see how secondhand reports might have misunderstood what was actually happening in the Christian worship service. This morning, I want to look at this passage in the Gospel of John and try to sort of get underneath the meaning of these words from Jesus. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. Now, I do want to warn you, if you haven't picked up, it is a difficult passage. Even the disciples say so. After this scene, the disciples say, this teaching's hard and who can accept it? And we see several followers of the crowd who have been following Jesus actually depart from him after he says this. However, whenever we put the words of Jesus in the proper context, I think the spiritual meaning of this passage is much more palatable despite some of the, frankly, odd imagery that we encounter in it. Now, before you get ahead, try to think of where I might be going with the sermon, I want to read a quote from uh, J.C. Ryle, whose expository thoughts on the Gospels is a treasure trove of sayings about the Gospel of John. And he says this, Few passages of Scripture have been so painfully rested and perverted as that which we have read now. Let us first carefully consider what these verses do not mean. The eating and drinking of which Christ speaks do not mean any literal eating and drinking. Above all, the words were not spoken with any reference to the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. 
Let this never be forgotten. Baptism and the Lord's Supper, no doubt, are holy sacraments and mighty blessings when rightly used, but it is worse than useless to drag them in everywhere and to see them everywhere in God's Word. Well, I do think we have downplayed the significance of the Lord's Supper in the Baptist tradition throughout the 20th and 21st centuries. Uh, And while I do think this text might give us a little insight for how we can think about the Lord's Supper, it might come as a surprise to hear that I actually don't think that's what this passage is about. Uh, If there was ever an instance in Jesus' life besides, you know, the Last Supper, where you might think this is what Jesus is talking about, this could have been a good contender to think about, right? However, I don't actually think it's what's happening here. Rather, I believe Jesus is showing his disciples and crowds, and the crowds following him, uh, how they should understand his upcoming death. He does this a few times in his ministry, right? He famously, uh, one of the instances, he famously tells Peter, get behind me, Satan, whenever he tries to deny the meaning of it. Um, Another time after the transfiguration, and then another instance uh, on the way to Jerusalem for the Passover, he, he tries to constantly clue people in to what's happening, right? He's constantly just like, hey guys, I'm, I'm gonna die soon. I hope you realize that. And they're like, we don't know what you mean by that, Jesus. Um, and he, so this is a persistent theme. And I think this is another one of those scenes. And just like in those other scenes, save maybe one or two individuals, the listeners are almost always confused by Jesus's prediction of his death. To really wrap our minds around this, I think it helps to read this in the context of ancient Judaism. So we're going to look at this through kind of two lenses. Uh, First, we will see how Jesus contrasts himself with the people's longing to follow after Moses and his authority. After all, who among all of history was a prophet like Moses? The Jews of Jesus' day were tempted to place all their hope on him instead of in the God who worked in and through Moses. So that's kind of the first thing we see Jesus interacting with. And then we will see how he commands the crowds to eat his flesh and drink his blood, and in doing so, draws on specific Passover imagery to further draw a contrast between the Old Covenant, binding us to the law, and the New Covenant, binding us to Christ. And he uses these two things to kind of draw out one big conclusion— that the way to the Father is through the crucified Son of Man, whose body and blood we feast on in remembrance of His sacrifice. So before we look more closely at this text, uh, I just want to briefly pray, and then we will uh, jump into the feast, so to speak. So pray with me. God, I thank You for sending Your Son into the world, for giving us a tangible and real and truer image of the manna given from heaven to the Israelites. That the Son of God didn't count equality with you a thing to be grasped or exploited, but instead humbled himself, taking on our likeness and learning obedience of a servant to the point of his death on the cross. I thank you that he makes himself known to us now through that sacrifice, that his body broken upon the Christ has on the cross has ushered in Uh, our ability to know Christ and thus know you. And I pray you would enable us now to feast on your word, the bread of life. I pray this would be a more fulfilling meal for us than that of Thanksgiving or of Christmas celebrations or these other meals that uh, lasts and turn to hunger after a couple days. 
we know that that is not the case with you. So I pray that you feed us this morning, Lord. It's in the name of the Son, I pray, to the Father, through the Spirit. Amen. So to really draw out this first point, the way that Jesus contrasts himself with Moses, uh, I think we need to spend some time situating the conversation uh, in the context of chapter 6. What you guys don't know is I've actually played a trick on you this morning. Uh, I didn't want to read the whole chapter because poor Harold got thrown into the reading of Scripture last second. Uh, and off, off the top of my head, chapter 6 is, I think, the longest chapter in the Gospel of John. So I assume you wouldn't want me to read the whole thing right now either. <laughs> and so uh, we're going to kind of walk through the context of this. Uh, so you can really think of this sermon as, as a sermon on the entirety of John 6. Um, that's the trick that I've played on you. I'm actually making you think about more of the Bible than you knew you were going to have to think about this morning. Um, as a brief aside, this is probably a good time to, to insert some unsolicited advice. Uh, sometimes when you read the Bible in larger chunks, you can start to draw out themes that you didn't realize were there, uh, especially for those of us that follow like a Bible reading plan. Those are super helpful for staying in the Word regularly. But sometimes we get so granular that we end up missing bigger pictures that, that end up emerging throughout the scriptures. So I would encourage you uh, throughout your week, maybe take, take time to read, I don't know, one of Paul's letters in one sitting or read uh, an entire gospel in a day or something like that, right? Something that you wouldn't necessarily do all of the time because I think you'll see as we look at today, sometimes there's some interesting things happening in the literature that, that we miss if we break it down too much. Um, so that's just for free. You can go ahead and make a little note to yourself, and then we can move past that. Uh, but since time's limited, and since we're working through uh, such a long chapter, I'm just going to kind of hit the high points to try to draw out these kinds of themes that I'm talking about. And as we sort of walk through chapter 6 together, I specifically want you to pay attention to the ways this passage parallels the story of Israel and the cultural narrative of the Passover. Both are recurring characteristics that happen in the way that John composes his gospel, and I think that this is an intentional move by him. In fact, if you'll remember, I think it was two times ago that I preached, I talked about John 7, the next chapter, and we talked about how John sort of framed it in the context of these Jewish festivals, right? We talked about what it meant for Jesus to tabernacle among us, to bring rivers of living water with him. Uh, and today's scene comes to us in the context of yet another festival, the Passover. John tells us this at the very beginning of the chapter, right? In 6-4, the Passover, a Jewish festival, was near. John telling us that is, is him cluing us in that, hey, I'm going to draw on this imagery of the Passover in telling the story of Jesus. So Passover is coming soon. Jesus has actually just indicted crowds at the end of chapter 5 for setting their hope on Moses. He tells them that they pour over the scriptures, that they think they have eternal life in him. However, if they actually believed Moses, they would believe Jesus because Moses was writing about Jesus. Um, so that's what, that's what he's coming off the heels of. He's just done that. And then chapter 6 serves as kind of a case study of this idea, that the authority of Moses is actually subservient to the authority of Jesus. And I think we can see this if we notice the parallels in the way that John sets the scene and how he compares how we compare them to passages like Exodus 12 and Numbers 11. So, 
I just want to kind of highlight some of these parallels because I think it, it, it helps draw out this imagery that Jesus is working with. Uh, it's things that, you know, to 21st century Protestants, we, we wouldn't really notice it, but to ancient Jews, uh, it probably would have been a little more obvious to them. So Jesus withdraws up to a mountain in verse 3, just like Moses on Sinai. The Passover is near, and a crowd comes to him, eventually asking where they could find bread to eat. This parallels, of course, the Israelites asking God for food, right? And the next scene's the feeding of the 5,000, a miracle that we're all very familiar with, or at least I assume most of us are. However, we rarely see how it connects to Numbers 11, because Moses has a strikingly similar crisis. In this instance, Moses is worried that he couldn't provide food for 600,000 foot soldiers, even if they caught all the fish in the sea and killed all the beasts of the land. Now we know God provides quail to the Israelites, and in John 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000, and the disciples and crowds cross the sea, once again paralleling what Israel does, and the next day is set to begin. We can see that John is sort of playing with the reader a little bit, right? We can see how he's intentionally presenting this to mirror the story of Israel, <clears throat> drawing this dichotomy between the works of Moses and the works of Jesus. This is to set up the dispute that's about to happen. After some back and forth with the crowd and Jesus, it all comes to a head at verse 30, where the crowds demand a sign that validates the authority of Jesus. They wanted some proof from Jesus that he was actually what he said he was, right? They needed to believe uh, what they saw with their eyes, so to speak. Moses, after all, was able to provide the proof. This is what they say. They say that he gave the Israelites the manna from heaven, after all, showing that he was, you know, intimately connected with God as a prophet of God and the representative of Israel, and we know this is the implication of what the crowds are saying because of the way that Jesus responds to them, right? Why else would he correct them by telling him, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven? Instead, God gives you true bread from heaven. The point here is that the people wanted to keep themselves under the authority of Moses. They had set their hopes on him, as Jesus had just condemned at the end of chapter 5. They saw Moses as, they deliver, as their deliverer, or so they had sort of twisted the story, right? We know that God ultimately provided the manna, but they said, no, Moses gave us manna. Why don't you do a sign like Moses did in providing manna? Because we want to believe you, but we don't have any evidence, which is hilarious because he's just fed 5,000 people, right? Um, but Jesus tells them that true bread comes from the Father, and when they ask for this true bread, Jesus gives them arguably the most pivotal response in this entire passage. I am the bread of life. Drawing on yet another image from the life of Moses, Jesus echoes the way that God reveals himself, beginning his sentence with the very same words, I am, this way connecting it to the bread of life. The reason why I'm going to such great lengths to paint this background is because it makes Jesus' claim a little more direct. We can see what he's actually doing if we set it in the context of these parallels with Israel, right? Truly, I say to you, anyone who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. 
This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that anyone may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. Drawing on the crowd's earlier appeal to Moses' authority and the manna coming from heaven, Jesus recasts himself as the bread of life coming from heaven, bread that is greater than the manna provided by Moses himself. They failed to remember that in the days of Moses, the Israelites' appetite for manna and quail would subside. They forgot that the manna would melt in the sun. In fact, by the time of Jesus' life, Jewish texts actually had made this imagery of the manna uh, an even more central feature of what they were looking forward to. We have a, a wisdom literature that talks about how one day the, when the Messiah would come, uh, the people would one day eat manna again, and all those who arrived at the consummation of time would, would eat this manna. And contrary to this, Jesus reminds the people that a second batch of manna could never promise them life. Even their ancestors, the ones who followed Moses, who they adored so much and saw such a significant figure, they died. Jesus encourages the people to no longer desire the manna of Moses, to no longer stay in captivity to the law, kind of like how the Israelites under Moses had desired to return to Egypt when they had nothing to eat, right? Instead, Jesus extends the call to come partake of true bread that would never lead to death. So, in, in showing these parallels, it's tempting to just say, cool parallels, Jesus fulfills the parallels, guess we're calling it a wrap, right? But that isn't what Jesus does. Jesus actually doubles down on his language. He doesn't just say, okay, this is just an analogy. Uh, you should just think of the manna as figurative for me and it's a one-to-one -one swap. I'm here now. I'm the better manna. I'll go to the next town and preach my message. Instead, let's continue on in verse 51. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. At that, the Jews argued among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you do not have life in yourselves. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day because my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in him. Now there's this common trope in Jesus' earthly ministry where he will say something figuratively and then he'll have to come along and he'll have to explain it literally to whoever's listening to him, right? Think about, for example, John 3, Nicodemus comes to him and he says, well, you must be born again. And Nicodemus says, well, I'm an adult. How can I get back in my mother's womb, right? And Jesus is like, no, it's a spiritual birth. Please calm down and don't do anything crazy, right? Uh, but this isn't what happens. Noticeably, this isn't what happens. Jesus had a perfect opportunity to go back, well, I'm not saying that you, you shouldn't, you know, eat my flesh, or that you should eat my flesh. Instead, I'm saying that you should, you know, feast on the truth that I'm bringing, or something like that. But no, he comes back and he says, actually, the bread of life that I'm bringing you is my flesh and my blood, which is a very uh, bizarre response. <laughs> uh, it, he intensifies the language. 
And there's two specific distinctions I want to point out that I think show us how much more specific and intensified this language gets. The first is there is a change in Jesus' vocabulary. Uh, His words shift from this softer image of eating bread, right, to the more grotesque image of flesh and blood. But there's an even more significant change uh, that that is kind of lost in our translations. Um, Throughout the discourse, Jesus has consistently used a fairly standard word for eat, just kind of a generic, like, hey, we're going to go eat. Um, But during this part of the discussion, he actually changes it to a word that's more like our word for, let's say, chew, right? Uh, Trogon. It was typically used to describe animals gnawing or munching in the wild, Uh, especially think of like an animal like a mule, you know, that just kind of like grinds on whatever it's eating. A rough equivalent of this distinction would be, for example, uh, if you were talking about Let's say you were talking to a kid and you were like, hey, you need to eat your steak versus, oh, you need to chew your steak. Those are two different things, right? If you're a parent, you know this whenever you've had like a kid coughing because they haven't chewed on their food enough or something. So you know the difference between these two terms. Quite literally, Jesus changes from this more uh, potentially figurative language of saying, hey, eat my flesh to saying in the most literal way he can, chew on me, which is a little crass, perhaps, uh, but it would have been crass to the Jews, too. In fact, that's why they react the way that they do. It's a very graphic picture, and it would have been deeply offensive to them. So first, we have this change in vocabulary. We have the change from, from eat my flesh or eat the bread of life to no, actually chew. Um, and then second, we have this distinction between uh, unprepared or raw flesh and the prepared meat of the Passover lamb. Uh, if you can think all the way back, whenever the, the Passover is instituted in Exodus 12, God gives uh, the Israelites specific instructions for how they should eat the lamb, right? They should eat the meat at night. Uh, they eat it roasted over the fire along with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. And they shouldn't eat any of it raw or cooked in boiling water, but only roasted over fire. Its head, as well as its legs and the inner organs... Don't leave any of it until morning, and any part of it left until morning must burn. Jesus' command to chew the flesh would bring this kind of imagery to mind, right? It's one of the only like commands about how you should eat flesh in the entirety of the Old Testament. Uh, it also would have brought to mind, for example, dietary prohibitions from Leviticus 17 and Deuteronomy 12. That there are specific prohibitions against eating raw meats. God tells the Israelites not to eat the blood of an animal or eating meat that still has blood in it because blood is the source of life and that is not fit to be consumed. Blood was an atoning substance. It wasn't something we should eat. Now hearing these two distinctions side by side, you might be wondering at this point, so how does this actually apply to what what Jesus says? Like I can see these differences The way one writer phrases it puts it, I think, concisely and helpfully. He says here that Jesus is not urging his hearers to eat his flesh and blood as though he were the Passover lamb to be consumed. Rather, he is pointing towards his death as a Passover lamb in which his flesh and blood would be offered for the life of the world. And suggesting that his followers should chew the flesh, Jesus is not saying his body serves as a kind of stand-in 
for the body of a sacrificial Passover lamb. Rather, he's telling those around him that his body would soon be prepared in the same way that the body of a Passover lamb would be prepared. It would be offered to the world in the same way that the Passover lamb is offered for the forgiveness of sin. He would soon be slain like the lamb is slain, and his death would be sacrificial. His body would be adorned with spices at his burial, not dissimilar to the bitter spices that the Passover lamb should be cooked with. And in this process, his body is being figuratively prepared for his resurrection, through which the body and blood of Christ can now be offered to the world for forgiveness of sins. In other words, I think Jesus is pointing us toward the idea that the bread of life or the flesh and blood that we're told to consume as followers of Christ is not the unprepared body of Jesus as he's standing in front of these crowds in the first century, you know, in Capernaum. Rather, eating the flesh means his body would undergo right preparations for its offer to the world. The body of Christ would soon be crucified. It would be buried and then resurrected. And through that, he could actually encounter people as the risen Christ. This is the very same imagery we see on the road to Emmaus. I've talked about this passage many times when I preach because it's one of my favorite in the New Testament. The risen Christ meets his people in what? The breaking of bread and the exposition of the word. Opening up the scriptures and notably beginning with Moses, the risen Christ explains what the crowds couldn't see in John 5 and 6, that these stories of Moses and his travels with Israel and all the prophetic texts that followed in light of it were all pointing forward to the fact that one day Christ would die, be buried, and resurrect, that he would take on flesh to die like a Passover lamb lamb dies, that he would have his fleshly body prepared through the death and resurrection of it, And he would now be able to encounter his followers as they break bread and dwell on his word. These two things are actually inseparable whenever we think about the risen Christ. The breaking of bread and the reading of the scriptures. This is why we are happy to continue the observation of communion and the commitment to expository preaching that we have at FBA. As the word of God made flesh... To chew on the flesh is both to partake in the Lord's Supper, but it's also to meditate on the Word of God, right? In fact, one early Christian interpreter took this entire metaphor in John 6 as both, you know, this metaphor between the Word incarnate and the Passover lamb and all these connections, and he says this. He says that we should not eat the lamb raw by reading the Bible plainly or without searching out the spiritual meaning of the text. Instead, We have to actually do something to transform it to be suitable for human use. We need to to search deeply into the text of the Bible in order to find its spiritual application to us. We can see then, framing it this way, the richness of this command from Jesus, right? The command to chew the flesh of Jesus and to drink his blood is just a recapitulation of this broader story. And it would, in its day, aid Jesus' followers in how they should contextualize the death that they would soon witness of Jesus on the cross. And for us today, it's a reminder that we can still encounter the risen Christ, both in the breaking of bread and in searching the Scriptures. 
Let us look then at the final few verses of this scene, and that'll wrap up our time together. Beginning in verse 57, just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. It is not like the manna your ancestors ate, and they died. The one who eats this bread will live forever. He said these things while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. Having issued the difficult command of chewing on Jesus' flesh and blood, Jesus reiterates what he has been trying to say throughout his entire earthly ministry. The way to get to the Father is through the Son. Or, to be a little more precise with how John would probably say it if he were saying this sentence, uh, the way to the Father is through eating the flesh of the Son of Man, right? The one who would be crucified soon and would rise again. J.C. Ryle, who I quoted at the beginning of the sermon, says this, Faith in Christ's atonement is a thing of absolute necessity to salvation. Just as there was no safety for the Israelite in Egypt who did not eat the Passover lamb in the night when the firstborn were slain, so there is no life for the sinner who does not eat the flesh of Christ and drink his blood. The manna from heaven was futile. It never even promised to actually sustain the Israelites beyond a day or two, Right? And while God was faithful to provide daily bread for them, it would have ultimately led them to the same place that we are all led, their death. But the Father sent the Son to take on our likeness, to become the bread of life, to dwell among us and become offered up like a sacrificial lamb, so that one day we could enter into true fellowship with Him through the cross of Christ. And it's through this fellowship that we receive eternal life. I think this is why the disciples respond to the scene the way they do. Like we talked about, they say this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? It's less about the difficulty of Jesus saying all these weird things about chewing his flesh. I think it's actually more about them understanding that they were now faced with a choice. Are you going to choose Moses or are you going to choose Jesus? And this, of course, forces our hand to ask ourselves, what would we decide? Are we comfortable with our own life, sustained here and there by God, but ultimately submitting to our own interests? Or will we be like Simon Peter, who responds, to whom else shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. The Son of God is the only way, and all the other ways are futile. I want to leave uh, you with a brief story that I think offers some encouragement. Because I know some of you are probably thinking, okay, I've already made this choice, so I guess I'm good. And we both know that the Christian life isn't that simple, right? <laughs> it's very easy for us to look back uh, at being a Christian for 10 or 15 years, 10 or 15 days, however long, and say, well, I lost the joy, or I lost the fervor I once had, or I, I've made a lot of mistakes or I think my relationship with God was better before I had this trial or this problem, this illness, this ailment. I can't remember if I've used this specific example in a sermon before, um, so forgive me if this isn't new, but I once heard theologian D.A. Carson tell a story several years ago, and I still think about it regularly. I mean, several times a year. It's not a true story. It's, it's one he made up to prove a point. But I want to share it here and, and talk about some of the conclusions he draws from it because I think it's a great example of our surety of our salvation in Christ 
And it draws on similar themes to what we've, what we've discussed. Uh, so often I read a text like John 6, and I think about how simple the gospel message is and how stupid I must be to still find myself stuck in my old habits and my old ways. And so if, if, if that's you, if that resonates with you, which I, I can only imagine it does at least a handful of you, uh, be encouraged by this. So D.A. Carson tells this story of two Jews by the name of Smith and Brown, which he notes are remarkably Jewish names. Um, the day before the very first Passover, they're talking among themselves, and Smith turns to Brown and he asks, boy, are you, are you a little nervous about what's going to happen tonight? And Brown says, well, God told us what we're supposed to do through his servant Moses. You don't need to be nervous. After all, haven't you slaughtered the lamb and dabbed the two doorposts with blood? You've put blood on the lintel. Haven't you done that? And you're all packed and you're ready to go. And you're going to eat the whole Passover meal with your family, aren't you? I mean, you're going to prepare the lamb after you sacrifice it, and then you're going to eat it quickly during the Passover like God has commanded us. And Smith replies, well, of course I've done that. I'm not stupid. But it's still pretty scary when you think about it. All the things that have happened around here lately, you know, there's flies and there's blood. It's pretty awful. And now there's this threat of a firstborn being killed. And you have three sons. I've only got one. Uh, so, you know, I love him. The angel of death's passing through tonight. And I know what God says. I put the blood there, but it's pretty scary. I'll be glad when the night's over. And the other responds, bring it on. I trust the promises of God. So that night, as God promises, the angel of death sweeps through the land. And now, at this point, I ask, which one of these men lost his son? The answer is, of course, neither. Death doesn't pass over them on the ground of the intensity or the clarity of their faith exercised, but on the ground of the blood of the Lamb. That's what silences our accuser. The blood of the lamb silences the accuser of the brothers as he accuses us before God. He silences our consciences when he accuses us directly. How many times do we writhe in agony, asking if God could ever love us enough, if God can ever care for us enough, after we have done such stupid, sinful, and rebellious things, after being Christians for what, 10, 20, 30 years? What are you going to say? Oh, God, I tried hard, you know? I did my best. It was a bad moment. No. You have no other argument. I have no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. We overcome the accuser by the blood of the Lamb. There is the ground of all human assurance before God. There is the ground of our faith, not guaranteeing intensity of faith because we are far too fickle for that. It's not our intensity of faith, but the object of our faith that saves us. It is the blood of the Lamb. This is the good news of the gospel, and it's the good news of our text this morning. We set our hope on the reality that the gift of the bread of life is not like the manna that the Israel's ancestors ate. Christ's sacrifice is a once-for-all providence that secures abundant salvation for any who may call upon his name. And it's not for Israel only. It's for the whole world. And it won't dissipate at the end of the day. 
It doesn't matter how feeble your faith is, how sinful you are, or how you may have messed your life up. If the blood of lamb has been, if the blood of the lamb has been placed on your doorpost, if you have chewed on the flesh of the Son of Man, then you are safe and sound in the arms of your Savior, Jesus. And this is truly good news. Um, so I'm going to ask Harold to come up and pray um, as we prepare to respond in worship this morning.